the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schütz and this is the Science Inside. In fact, it is a bittersweet show for me today. I've been on the Science Inside for quite a few years now, both behind the microphone and in front of it. And this, in fact, is my last show talking science with you. I am moving on to other things, but don't you worry. The Science Inside will be back again next year. And... Over all the years that I've done this, the one thing that is so important to me about what we do here is that science is applicable to our lives. It's important. Science changes lives. It saves them from medicine to uh, to chemistry. And also it teaches us so much about ourselves and the world. And tonight's show is one about a particular scientist and her small contribution to those things. Um, as I said, it's our feature scientist, so that's what we do once a month, looking at a specific scientist and what they do, both professionally and what it's like being them as a scientist. And today, the person we'll be talking to focuses her research on the structures, the tiny structures of semiconducting metal oxide. And she uses these to create gas-detecting applicators. So you and I, we all use gas in some way maybe it's uh, for cooking or it's in in cars in stoves even heart rate monitors can use them and they're used in everything from the food industry to agriculture and of course even the air we breathe is a form of gas so it is important not just to know this but to monitor and detect gases because of course most of them cannot be seen or smelled and they can be quite dangerous. So for instance a very important place where gas detectors are uh, are used uh, is in mines. So gases such as methane, nitrogen dioxide and hydrogen sulfide can be incredibly dangerous for the lives of miners and that's why we need to make sure that we have good gas detectors making sure that everything everything is as it should be and that is exactly why the work of our feature scientist today is so important. Her name is Amaswazi Chabalala and she completed her bachelor's and honours in applied physics at UKZN, the University of KwaZulu-Natal. She's a feisty 27 year old from a township in Newcastle called Blauboch in KZN. And in 2014, she joined the CSIR, that's the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, as an intern for her master's. And currently, she is undertaking her PhD studies in solid state physics. She looks specifically at using nanoscience and nanotechnology to help technicians manipulate and enhance the properties of certain materials to make them the very best that they can be for a particular application. So, as I say, she now works at the CSIR. She's been the author and co-author of various articles in peer-reviewed journals and has many accolades below her belt, such as several CSIR Excellent Awards. And today on the show, we'll be speaking to her not just about her field of research, which is 
gas monitoring and how it affects our lives, but also just a little bit professionally in a personal capacity. What motivates her, why she does the science that she does and all that good stuff. But if you are a regular listener, you'll know that that's not the only thing we do on the show because we do have a feature called Unscience. It is quite strange and wonderful. And today it takes us to the bedroom. Oh my. So we ask the question whether your girlfriend would like you to open her bra using a special password and voice recognition. (laughs) I don't think so, but one inventor seems to think that yes, she does indeed. As always, we will kick it off with some science news. And if you want to talk to us about anything on the show, maybe you have some questions for our future scientist, you want to know about... um, about gas detection and how it can influence our lives or you want to say something about the very strange um, automatic bra situation we'll be talking about you can find us on social media facebook is vow fm or on twitter vow fm just the same one v-o-w nice and simple you can use that hashtag science inside if you miss anything on the show today it's not a problem because it's up on itunes as well as our website vits.journalism.coza forward slash science you can also send us a whatsapp on 084-078-4912 we will kick off the news in a second um i'll show rather in a second with our news this week's science headline Hello and welcome back to the show. We are now doing our um, our science news today with our producer, Bridget Lepere. How are you doing? I'm great. And how are you? Good, good. What do you have for us in the news today? Well, today we have a very interesting story about a scientist in China who has created genetically modified twins for the first time. Okay, that sounds like a big breakthrough. Yeah, a big breakthrough, but something not everybody is actually really excited about uh, because there are ethics involved. So a Chinese scientist called Dr. He Jian-Q has come under fire for having produced genetically edited babies, something which his peers and colleagues in the medical sphere deem as very unethical. I have seen this story um, online. It's been making the rounds, and I can see I can see why people would think that um, it's a big one. Tell us more about it. Well, he received heavy backlash and eyeballing from his colleagues and his peers after information which he claims was leaked revealed shocking details about his gene editing technique called uh, CRISPR or CRISPR. And speaking at a genome editing conference in Hong Kong earlier this week, he defended his unethical maneuvers saying he regrets how the news came out, but that he is... proud about his work because it was actually safe and ethical according to him. So of course when it comes to ethics you're always going to have people on both sides of the coin saying this is unethical, we shouldn't be doing it and on the other side actually it's worth the risk, it's fine, we need this research, it's important so what about frameworks? There's got to be some kind of guidelines around this. Sure Uh, his colleagues called him out saying that his conduct was unethical because at the con 
at this conference that they were all attending, he failed to answer the serious questions about the safety of the embryo uh, editing technique and the lack of transparency that would have facilitated this kind of research to be monitored to prevent the use of technology from being abused and misused. And they also saying that um, all of these things were very uh, questionable, even though the idea behind what he did was good in hindsight, but um, it's it, it's it, it wasn't ethical because of the way um, the, the framework is structured around actually editing human genes. Mm. So um, if um, I don't think I mentioned it earlier on, but um, the father of these twins, he is HIV uh, positive. So in his um, gene editing procedures, he was trying to create babies who wouldn't be prone to contracting um, HIV. So even if the parent was, 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 has HIV, then uh, the children wouldn't contract the HIV from the parent. So basically what, that's what he did in, um, in editing the genes of these babies. Mm. So just so that we understand this better, how exactly did he do this research? Well, uh, uh, a Nobel laureate, David Baltimore, and um, other and other colleagues there um, at this conference, and uh, another professor of genetics and embryology at Francis Creek Institute in London, and this is Robin Lovell Badge, who moderated the session, asked if the techniques were if the techniques were so ethical and so safe. Why was this project? run in so much secrecy why was it surrounded by so much secrecy and why was he uh, so quick to jump the gun and go ahead and do something like this which hasn't been approved because there have been talks about this but it's not approved and um, they have called his conduct very irresponsible and obviously unethical and medically unnecessary. Mm, I mean, I think it being under wraps in itself to me isn't, uh, doesn't equate to being unethical because in the sciences we see lots of things that happen in secrecy because you don't want somebody else to steal your idea. So sure. that in itself to me is is not the same as it being wrong but one question that i would have is you mentioned the father mm -hmm. um what right did the parents have do they have a say in this process because that to me would would be quite important yes um and as you rightfully mentioned, um, the ethical part was that uh, the thing that came out from this report was that he didn't even inform the university under which he's working under. So mm. that makes it unethical um, on its own, right? And the parents were, were informed about the implications of this procedure and he said that he reminded them of the option to leave the trial without an implantation or to choose the embryo. So the couple elected to implant these embryos to start a two-embryo uh, pregnancy. But surprisingly, as I said, he didn't... Um, he didn't notify the university and that's what his colleagues were saying that had he notified the the, the university they probably would have said no you can't do something <laughs> well, like this he probably knew that yeah. <laughs> probably exactly but uh there still had to be processes around this even if he's doing it quite secretly how did he find these research participants then uh, well, he had um, the, the parents of the twins and seven other uh, couple participants uh, to, uh, for this research. And then he says they were fully 
informed um, about um, about the the processes of 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 of, of this um, procedure, and then yeah, so he basically went ahead and he and he cut off. Um, he went ahead and uh, continued the procedure without consulting the university, and yeah, obviously the university says um and and his colleagues they say that he they need to they need to be proper measures put in place and uh follow up um on this but it has been deemed unethical basically Hmm. so very importantly there are obviously humans involved here so just lastly Bridget how are the twins what's the way forward for them well um, he says the, the the twins um they are normal they um, um, they um, they are normal and then they are healthy but um, other scientists say that they don't know how these children will turn out in future because obviously um, he was the only one working on this project and there aren't other uh, peers who would have reviewed his work prior to him carrying out uh, this research. So they are just basically worried about how the children are going to turn out and if other things um, about the children's health has not been uh, implicated or uh, tarnished. Mm. Do we know about the effects around HIV? Because that's a big question, I'm assuming. Um, the, the, the study didn't look so much into, um, well, the information that I have received, didn't, I didn't find so much of uh, information as to how there were um, implications around um, HIV. But they, it was just at this conference where they were saying that something like this should not have been done or conducted uh, to begin with because uh, there's so much of things to look into before carrying out this kind of research some something things like this are sometimes good in theory but not really good um, practically especially if you don't know what the results will be mm. ah, but yet it's done now it's out in the world and and I think as uh, this technology goes forward you can't pretend that this didn't happen you have to keep monitoring these twins and looking at what happens to them regardless of of um, how much backlash there was about this particular story sure yeah and now these children become a responsibility of all the scientists who are there because now it makes everybody who was there responsible for answering to the science that was carried out but without actually having thought about um, what will the repercussions be when something that is so heavy has been just done um, at a whim like that. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So in, in my news story today, Bridget, um, I've got to ask you, do you know about the concept of atomic clocks? That sounds like a bomb. <laughs> you can tell me more about it. It, it does tick. Uh, no, no. So an atomic um, an atomic clock is, is quite important, even though you don't have one on your wrist. So all of the clocks in the world are normal, are normal wrist watches and clocks um, need to get their time from somewhere, right? And obviously, we need those to be very accurate. We need one second here to be the same as a second in China and vice versa. And, uh, you know, 
to check those. We can't just have one really big clock sitting somewhere and it's all checking it. That wouldn't work, right? Yes. So the most precise form of timekeeping is done through, through these things called atomic clocks. They use microwave signals emitted by electrons in certain elemental atoms. So basically they're looking at how often these waves get transmitted and we're talking tiny tiny amounts like a tiny fraction of a second um, that's how accurate they are and these atomic clocks get, get used to set the standard not just for time distribution worldwide but they're also part of controlling all kinds of things like the the wave frequencies of TVs um, and they're used in GPS it's all over the place so there is something new around this. The world's most accurate atomic clock yet has just been developed by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, in the States. It uses a very rare element called yetabium, yetabium, mm-hmm. I think, first discovered in a place called Yatabi in Sweden. And they've created several of these atomic clocks. Um, So they've created more than one so that they can check them against each other, which makes sense. And then inside, there's thousands of these um, Yotobian atoms trapped Mm -hmm. into little grids using laser beams. And as they vibrate or switch between energy levels, this is recorded. Wow. So it's like a, a clicking clock. Yes, obviously there's no yeah, there's no sound because we're talking like we're talking electron level, but that's that's sort of what they're doing with it. So these new experimental atomic clocks have broken several performance records in the world, not just in how they're very similar to each other, but how accurate they are in relation to natural frequencies of this specific um, yetabium element. But you keep on saying that these clocks are very uh, accurate. Yes. But how? How exactly? So, <laughs> extremely. So, um, you, know, you know how a clock starts to vary. It starts to lose or gain a second, say, when you have a really old clock. Yeah. I know mine is currently like 10 minutes off in my kitchen. So, that would be the worst example of, um, of, of varying over time. But this clock wouldn't vary, so that it wouldn't lose or gain more than a second in a span of, get this, 14 billion years. That's as long as scientists think the universe as a whole has been around. So we're talking an error margin of 10 to the power of 18. That's one billionth of a billionth. That's a lot of time. <laughs> well, a very small amount, <laughs> yes. yeah. Wow, but that's a very... You know, impressive. But to be honest with you, who really needs that kind of accuracy? I mean, to the T. I've never said I'm so sorry that I'm one billionth of a billionth late for this meeting. <laughs> <laughs> never happened to me before. So you are right. As a timekeeping instrument, it's it's really null and void. You don't, you really don't need that level of accuracy. But um, that's not really the most important thing we need atomic clocks for, even though it is a part of their job. So there's a bigger purpose for this here to be a clock. For one, gravity affects 
even in atomic clock's accuracy or frequency. So this is according to Einstein's theory of relativity. And this clock is the first one to be so accurate that gravity doesn't change it, right? Mm -hmm. So that basically means that you can turn things around with this clock and use it to examine changes in gravity with intense accuracy, including shifts in the Earth's gravitational field, which we actually don't know that much about yet. Mm. So they haven't, the big question now is, can you move this thing around, right? And they haven't been able to do that yet. They are working on making this clock transportable, mobile, so that they can obviously compare locations. Um, And it is also very important because currently, I did not know this, there's a process underway in terms of the international unit or units of time being redefined. They're re-looking at this. So this particular atomic clock could be a strong candidate in, in that process. Wow, this is really impressive. Oh, it's interesting <laughs> information. It still doesn't give you an excuse to be late for your meeting, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> and anyway, it's so big. Right? No, no, it's um, briefcase size. It's not that huge. Oh, really? As far as I know, yeah. Because I thought uh, you were saying it's not transportable yet, so... I think it might be quite volatile. Oh. So they only need they only need a couple of atoms of the thing. All right. Um, so it doesn't have to be pretty big, but moving it around can be tricky. Ah. <laughs> so that is a little bit from the world of science, from gene-edited babies to atomic clocks to kick off the science inside. But after the break, we'll get to our feature scientist. Talk about gas and how to detect it and hear a little bit about her personal journey into science. Stay with us. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Elna Schutz and today we are talking to our feature scientist, Zamaswazi. How are you doing? I'm good. And you, Elna? Very good. It's so exciting to speak to you. You work in the field of gas detection at the CSIR. Yes, uh, we use uh, nanostructured materials uh, for the application of gas sensors. Mm. Earlier in the show, we were talking about tiny, tiny amounts of time. Nanoscience is such an exciting field when it comes to tiny, tiny amounts of mass. <laughs> so again, that's that's what our our world has revolved in. Even our um, electronics our devices they're getting even smaller and slimmer we now have uh phones that are as slim as just films so mm-hmm. that's that's the world that we're revolving in no one wants to carry around a briefcase size of a telephone mm-hmm. <laughs> just like your, your 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 atomic clock so yeah that's where the world of nano nanoscience as nanotechnology is leading us mm-hmm. before we get a little bit deeper into your particular work i mentioned some things at the beginning of the show of where gas is in our lives from the mines to maybe maybe we cook with it or it might be in our um, in our cars tell me a little bit about the context why is it so important the work you do uh, well I, I feel like you've just covered everything because <laughs> <laughs> um, the honest truth is that we live in a chemical world we breathe gases we even consume them without realizing 
that we we are uh, we are uh, uh, within that environment mm-hmm. as we're sitting here in the studio we need fresh air to breathe we need oxygen we need a balance between the oxygen and the carbon dioxide that we breathe so imagine us suffocating in here just because we didn't notice that the air in this environment is no longer viable for breathing mind you um we have people who work in even more dangerous uh environments such as the people who actually produce these gases people in mines we have people who are working in 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 fuel industries in your refineries so we need to monitor every process including your fermentation in in breweries sap can 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 account to this even in breweries during fermentation there are gases that are being uh, uh either they are exposed to, they are emitted, or they are generated during whatever chemical process that is happening. And so, what is the effect of that gas in our lives? What is the effect of that gas in the environment, in the health, in, in even in just the general environment? Mm-hmm. So, we, we even now, we know... Um, we have carbon footprint, we have carbon emission, the, 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 the government, and also uh, the vehicle and motor mobile industry is including sensors and, and, and detectors in the car so that they monitor the, the emission of harmful gases such as your COs, your, your nitrogen oxides. So we need such gases to monitor our everyday life and for safety reasons, for health reasons and also for just quality of air, <laughs> if I should put it that yes. way. <laughs> I, I like that you balance both those things because one of the big examples is of course uh, gases that can be toxic yes. in closed spaces like for miners, yes. but the other uh, the other side is gases that are toxic for the environment. So you and I aren't going to keel <laughs> over but Mother Earth might have a bit of, bit of a problem with so, it. That's it. Yeah, that's true. So in what kinds of applications do you mostly work in? So for me, I'm focusing on mining. I'm focusing on detecting cases such as your nitrogen oxides uh, and your carbon oxides. So in that way, we can be able to eliminate incidences because here's one thing that we must also know with mines. Mines, you have two things acting against you. Mm-hmm. You can be in an oxygen-rich area or in an oxygen-deprived area and you wouldn't know. So we need oxygen sensors just for the health, the, 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 for, for, just for the survival of the workers. Two, we need methane sensors because methane explosion can be very, very dangerous. We have China, we have New Zealand, we have Australia. We also have South Africa who have experienced methane explosions in our mines. South Africa is rich in mining. We know that. We have a lot of mineral industries. So we need that balance. We have, uh, for example, I mentioned oxygen. If you're in an area that has too much oxygen, oxygen promotes combustion. So imagine a miner that is working down there and there's a spark. Spark plus oxygen equals to <laughs> kaboom. Yes. So we really need to look at, at such uh, at such applications. We have uh, gas sensors that are used for health reasons, for diagnosis. For example, now we see breathalyzers. The cops are using it to detect alcohol in, in, in our systems. Now we're going further. How do we now detect diseases, whether um, cancer or diabetes or whatever disease that we get. Uh, There was a breakthrough recently. You see, so it's such things that you go and be like, what is it that our body does? What gets that our body emits that can be used as a biomarker for a presence of a certain disease? So using 
gas sensors, we can then detect that instead of pricking, instead of how, of, of invasive uh, ways of diagnosis. So we can use it for that. Hmm. Now, you specifically, that gives us a good context, but you specifically, as I understand it, are focusing on titanium dioxide yes. microstructures. <laughs> Why is that your baby? Uh well, the the world of nanosciences has opened up such a huge, I don't know, exciting world, if I should say that. It's tiny, but it's exciting. With one material, you can use it for different applications. You can use the titanium for water treatment. You can use it for solar cells. And then now I'm using it for gas sensing. Why? This takes us back to what nanosciences enables us to do. It allows us to engineer or manipulate the properties of this material at a nanoscale, therefore enhancing those properties that we are interested in. If I want it for solar cell application, I will then enhance its absorption. Ah, (laughs) If I'm interested for its its water treatment, I will then enhance its catalytic activity. So now for sensing, then that's where comes where I need to go and understand what is it that I need to know about the gas that I'm targeting? What is it that I need to know about the, 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 the material that I'm using? With titanium, it's highly catalytic. It has a very reactive surface. So it makes it easy for the chemical reaction to happen whenever this material comes in contact with the gas. Therefore, it helps you with the reaction time because you don't want to be exposed for longer. Mm. So if it's highly active, it quickly responds to the presence of the gas. Therefore, in decreasing the response time. With the fast response time, we have a fast reaction from the people. If we need to ring an alarm, it's easy because you have... A, a, a warning period, if I should say that, before you can get to a very harmful exposure or toxic exposure level. Mm. And especially because a lot of these places aren't just open a window, oh. everything's fine. Yes. And other cases, they, they need you to know how to treat them. Other cases, you don't have to open a window. Maybe you need to shut window so you need to know what you are dealing with in order to know how you will react towards so this is the help of these guest detectors if you can design a guest detectors and program it to be able to tell you let's say for example you're in a home south africa is dominated by informal settlements it's dominated by shacks people use open fire open flame fires as a source of heat as a source of 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 energy for them to cook and even to warm themselves up in 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 winter how many cases of co poisoning do we get just in winter alone within the three months of winter you find people sleeping with open flame fire we call it imbawula in my language so you find people sleeping in a room that has it co doesn't have a a a sharp order when you are sitting down Mm. but when you're standing that's when you start to actually in detect it with your nose it can irritate you a bit or irritate your throat but it is very highly toxic you can result to death and suffocation it even give you burns on your skin when you've been exposed for longer so imagine you have a, a, a gas detector in, in your room that detects the CO. It can give you a, 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 a warning when you still have time to switch off or take out this open flame or switch off your gas stove. Or it can even give you a warning when, no, now it's time to evacuate. You cannot counteract it anymore. You just need to evacuate. Mm-hmm. So this is where we're going. This is, this is where we're going. If we can 
get to a point where we can install these sensors in our mobile phones, then you can take it everywhere. You're in a plane and there's a nerve gas released, you can quickly detect it. <laughs> right. Yes. There are, however, already gas sensors that have been around for a while. So what improvement um, are you really working on? Is it just widening what we can detect? Is it making that detection, as you said, faster? What are the main goals specifically okay. for you? So right now, the, the, the detectors that are, are, are available, they are not selective. They just detect anything and everything they just there's, know something's the smoke, wrong <laughs> there's something wrong <laughs> you get me so now we are dealing with selectivity how can we make it selective to a certain case so that it's suitable for a certain specific environment and application we are working on stability no one wants to renew a sensor every three weeks remember we're talking with people who are exposed to high dosimetry of of of, of these gases especially people working underground we want we are we are dealing with portability also there are mines where the sensor is only carried by one person they go in first check the environment go out and then the workers go down Sure, that's not a job anybody wants. Yes. But mind you, while the workers are down, there's no sensor there. Mm, and things can change. Things so can change. So we need them to be portable. We need them to be mobile, to be able to be within the worker, even if they form part of the worker's PPE, protective equipment. <laughs> so even if they can form part of that, like I said, if they can be installed or included in, in, in devices such as or cell phones or, or, or maybe the walkie-talkie, you get me? So in, in that way, they can be able to communicate real-time measurements. So that's one thing. It's selectivity, stability, and then portability because we don't want to be changing them over and over time. And also cross um, selectivity, you find that there are sensors that don't work in humid areas. They right. get affected by humidity. So we need to find that balance. You need to find the working temperature for your material. In that way, you'll be know where is it suitable f to. Mm. So, Ms. I feel like we have such a better understanding now of how important your work is. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stay with us a little bit later in the show. We'll speak to you on a slightly more personal level <laughs> as a scientist. But first, after the break, it's unscience. The Science Inside. If everybody says don't use plastic, don't use plastic, but give us some practical solutions here. One solution is zero waste stores. They're also called naked stores, but nobody takes their clothes off. And there are none of these in Joburg. And it's basically a shop where you get everything you want to buy without packaging. And this brings up all kinds of questions, like how does it work? And what about health and safety concerns? Every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Only on Fowlfam. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alna Schutz and this is where it gets fun and a little bit sexy today. Can you believe that? The weird and wonderful side of science is exactly what we speak about on Unscience. It's our feature. Um, it's our feature where we speak about 
uh, hilarious and strange things in the world of science. The feature today, Unscience, has been produced by myself. It comes from Improbable Research, and I'll be speaking to Bridget, um, my producer. Bridget, today the the tables are turned. I bring an Unscience to you for change. Very much, and I know it's going to be a very interesting one. Uh, I think so too. Uh, let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. So, Bridget, on today's unscience, I want to talk underwear. Oh la la. If you are a male listener, please don't switch off just because it's two women talking about lingerie. This invention I want to tell you about is one that very much takes you into account. I'm glad that science is thinking about the women as long as they're not degrading us. (laughs) I'm open to listening. (laughs) Hopefully never. So this particular one is about a recent patent that the United States gave to one Michael Manzur Ahmad Shahi. For his invention of, get this, signal activated lingerie. <laughs> what? <laughs> What's the signal and how exactly is it being activated? <laughs> right. So, this is about, in some ways, a relatively standard looking bra. Um, even though I've got to say the official diagram in the patent documents, the state patent documents, looks less Victoria's Secret and more 1950s housewife. Oh, no. Now, it's pretty simple. There's a sensor on this underwear in the front and an automated clasp on the back. And when a certain signal gets picked up by the sensor, such as a microphone, it releases and opens the underwear. Open sesame! (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So... What would the signal be? Is it a clapping of hands? Can you wink? <laughs> oh. not, not winking yet, and I feel like that would be very dangerous. <laughs> um, no, it is at the moment specifically something auditory, so a specific kind of clap, definitely. It could be a specific authorized person's command using voice recognition. So your partner's your partner saying a, a code word, for instance. But the patent does also cover other types of remote control like infrared or radio wave. So basically talking about a remote controlled bra here. Basically Bluetooth or Wi-Fi could be used. It's pretty high tech for underwear. I'm so fancy. You <laughs> so yeah. Wow, this is really interesting. But, you know, it's a shame. I think you should have really actually brought the underwear here so we could actually have a feel and see what this underwear looks like. So, can we buy this underwear already? <laughs> if if you would like to buy remote-controlled underwear, I am so sorry. It is not yet on the market. They do have the ba- the patent for now, but apparently they're launching products soon. Um, and you and I, um, I showed you this earlier, Bridget, it's... It's a one-piece situation. I'm not going to go into detail. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, I've got to say, I do not see this being particularly helpful beyond a joke or just some sexy fun. I mean, what is if your partner says something in public? <laughs> but then lingerie, shouldn't it be restricted maybe for the bedroom maybe? Like just before, you know, not like 
when you're going to work and then <laughs> someone just says open sesame and then everything falls apart yeah I, I think this this underwear would have to be worn with caution definitely but one thought that did come to mind on a more serious note is don't you think this would be really helpful as an assistive device true for somebody who maybe who doesn't have limbs not like arms or something they are unable to you know unlock that nifty button at the back or yeah yeah that because would be really, really really helpful if you think about that shoulder movement of reaching behind your back that's not something that anybody can do somebody who's injured or disabled that might be quite difficult and often it's easier to get a bra on than off yeah. so that would make sense to me and i think it could be helpful in a lot of other ways like um like pants even Oh, I thought you were going to say you're going to tell it to like cook or something. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Voice recognition there. Um, or yeah, or just around the, the house and things that you need to regularly open and shut. Yeah, like like high cupboards. If you're disabled and you can tell the high cupboard to open up, I think that, I mean, even if you're lazy, that could be helpful. <laughs> yeah, or even for things like, you know, belts and things like that. It would be cool for shoes as well. Oh on yes, a, on a tired day. True, true. You yeah. just voice voice recognition on all our clothing is what we want. Uh, so for now, though, they are just focusing on female underwear. So no male. Uh, my first thought was, okay, so can I? Uh, what about opening your partner's belt? Why are we just focusing on female underwear? Sure, yeah. They're always like gratifying, you know, <laughs> the female body. <laughs> it does. No, the patent does cover things like belts and trousers. They just haven't really gone into that. Um, but I, on this note, I have to say, when we talk strange lingerie, I prefer another scientific invention. It comes from about 10 years ago. It won an Ig Nobel Prize, which you might know. It's like sort of the funny Nobel Prizes. Yes. Um, and this was a bra that could be taken off and the two cups should could be detached and turned into protective face masks. So today on the show, we've been talking about gas a lot. This was actually a bra you could use in an emergency, emergency situation. If there was poisonous gas around, you could go, run up to somebody and say, it's okay, I will take off my bra. Oh, cool. And you could save another life with the other piece of the bra. Yeah. So, <laughs> see, I call that an emergency not your boyfriend being unable to open your bra sure <laughs> so that was our unusual unlikely unscience we'll get back to our future scientists after the break unusual unlikely unscience this is the science inside with Elma Today on the show, we have in studio with us Zamaswazi Chabalala, a physicist specializing in neuro, uh, not neuroscience, nanoscience and nanotechnology. Her research focus is on improving gas sensing mechanisms in hazardous environments. We've been having a really nice conversation about how it all works, Zamaswazi. Thank you. But... <laughs> You know what? Sometimes the best way to find out about someone is not just to ask them directly, right? So as we get into the last part of our interview, we actually called up a friend of yours, a, a former colleague, Aurelia Egenbaum. Yes. <laughs> She's in China. And this is a little bit what she had to say about you. 
Zamaswazi overall is a remarkable young lady. As a friend, Zama to me is someone who is humble, selfless, resilient, focused and loyal. And over the years, we have gone from being just acquaintances to colleagues. And now I would even call Zama family. And working with her has been amazing. And being her friend has been even more amazing. All in all, I truly count it a blessing to have Zama in my life. Some good things about you there. <laughs> you blushing a little bit. Oh, she's, she's my angel. <laughs> So we we heard from her there just uh, about how clearly you have an effect on the people around you. But tell us a little bit more about what it's like to really work in in this field where you're having big impacts on people's lives, but you're also sitting in a lab, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, th- uh, working in in science or being a, a researcher, it's like being behind the scene of a big production movie. No one is going to see you as the actor. No one is going to see you expressing the lines. But you were there as the writer. You were there as the script writer. You were there for, for, for lighting. You get me? So sometimes it's not about people knowing you. It's about your work reaching the people. So working in this field, it's it's. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the ability for me to be able to solve a problem and to see that solution changing a person's life or helping out a person. So to have an impact on, 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 on a human life, whether it's health or it's through the environment they live in, just to ha- have that thing that says, I was able to do that. You know, <laughs> yeah, and you know what? We don't all uh, at three years old say, "I really want to work in gas sensing." Yo, <laughs> I, <laughs> Maybe I didn't, you didn't even know about it at one point in life. Uh, if I were to tell you that at some point in my life I was doing space science, you won't believe. <laughs> oh wow, that's incredible! So, so, so why this? So, um, I, I, oh, from space science, I, I realized that I'm not a theoretical physicist. I am definitely not. Uh, During my honours, I was working with a group of of pharmacy students. They were working on some drug delivery things, so they needed some statistical analysis. So I was just helping them with plotting and presenting their data in graphical form. So that's when I got... To, to hear a lot about the, the field of material sciences, to hear about nano, nanotechnology. So that's how I got <laughs> dragged into this, this field. And so the, 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 the projects of gas sensing was what was available at the moment when, when I entered, uh, when, I, when I, 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 I first arrived at the CSR. But with the love of material sciences and the, and the understanding of semiconductor physics, I just went further deep <laughs> into it so I've been doing this work since my masters so yeah I, I did two years of my masters and now I'm finishing off my third year of my PhD but looking at the field and the ground level it's not where I wanted to be as yet so South Africa still has a long way to go and I'm glad we are I'm part of that yes. <laughs> yes. and we never know what the future holds but long term what are some of your professional dreams oh I don't want to lie, I still want to go to some biological applications. Like I said, drug delivery was my first introduction to, to nanosciences. So somewhere there, I think I will, somewhere, bi- bi- biology applications, I think I will. Mm, it's it. a great field. It is. And it's, 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 even though they are like ethical 
boundaries with it but it's one thing that you know that once it is found or when it is established and the research is done it can reach a whole lot of people that's uh, that's my drive i don't want to lie uh, i grew up in a township where i saw develop i think development started when i was already old i could tell what is wrong from what is right you go to to, to clinics you can tell the difference between a person who can afford and a person who cannot afford mm. so having to have that that impact and being able to improve a human life it's what drives me even though i didn't go straight into medicine uh but i feel like a part of me some way like you know if you believe in parallel universes <laughs> part of me is a brilliant <laughs> biologist somewhere so yes there's one out there somewhere <laughs> finishing off our conversation um what do you wish people knew about your work and your field of work uh what do people should know? Ah, well, I don't think they should know the science. <laughs> it's too complicated. It took me four years <laughs> to get it. Um, but what I think what people should know is that it is important to monitor the environment that you are working in or living in. It's not just because people have found this new fantasy of global warming or of carbon emission that people are now monitoring their environmental aspects but it's just a matter of being aware the environment that you live in what is it that the effect or the footprint that you are that you, you you that you are leaving whether you are smoking or you are releasing cases whether you're driving or, or, or whatever what is the impact there so it also helps with um when you are just leaving when you are in a mall being aware of the risks and also just the impacts of, of, of the environment that we live in. Mm. What a good lesson to leave it on. We've been speaking to Zamaswazi Chabalala all about gas and the environment and how close it, it actually is to our ordinary lives. You're still on the science side. What a show to end the year off on. Um, and as I as I hinted um, at the beginning of the science inside, while the science continues, my journey with the show is coming to an end tonight. It's been a long journey and some incredible, incredible memories of breaking news science, science that I'm sure in the future we can't imagine living without over the years. But tonight's show with our feature scientists has been a good reminder of the people behind the science. Science isn't some words in a, in a book. It's not just something out there. It's something that it's so close to our lives that can change it and save it at times. So a big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show, including Tamaswazi Chapadala and Aurelia Egambaram. It's been a good show with, with them and our team behind the scenes. Of course, I never do this alone. Um, I have my producer, Bridget Pair working hard behind the scenes. And as always, the formidable tech done by Kutlano Sayame. Our podcast, if you missed any of it, is on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science, as well as on iTunes as the Science Inside. You can find us on social media, both Facebook and Twitter, 
as Val FM. So now we will be back in January. The show will be back. But for myself, Alna Schutz, the Science Inside is produced by the Vitoedo Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. And it's been so good being with you. This is the Science Inside with Elna. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSN 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.